Lord, we ask you to bless this time, anoint it, help us to see what you would want us to see from this study, and guide and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 13. When last we left Paul, he was in Antioch of, of uh, Asia Minor, which is called Turkey today. And he'd, we left him as he had talked in the synagogue on the first Sabbath day. And he'd preached to the people about Jesus being the Savior, that the Israelites had killed him. And he'd left him at that point. And so starting at verse 41. Uh, 42, excuse me. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them on the next Sabbath. And now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spoke against these things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we will turn to the Gentiles. So we want to stop there for just a moment. They'd given this great message to the Gentile, the Jewish people in the synagogue. And I don't know how it is, but the Jew, this Gentiles wanted to know more about what was being said. I don't know if they were outside the windows listening or outside the courtyards, because a lot of these uh, ministries would happen in a courtyard setting. But apparently the Gentiles had heard some of them and they wanted to hear about this, this uh, teaching that Paul was bringing. Uh, so they came and said, come and teach us next next Sabbath or Saturday. Now it may have been just that people were getting excited and they you know, decided they wanted to hear this message. And then the next week when the congregation was broken up, and this means just dismissed, it doesn't mean that somebody had come in and, and, and arrested everybody, but when, when they got to the end of their regular message, it says many Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So the people that we were there, many of the people in that synagogue decided that we're going to listen to the message of Christ. All right? uh, and apparently a lot of them were the proselytes. And if we don't know what that means, that's the people that had become Jews from other religions. All right? So whatever religion they were, they'd become a Jew. They'd forsaken the other gods and goddesses that they were following and followed after uh, the Ju Judaism. And it said he persuaded them or convinced them to continue in the grace of God. The grace of God and compared to what they were used to being taught, which was all about God's laws and rules. And this is something that is hard for people to really understand that God's grace is, is what we want to live by. Uh, now, our flesh likes the idea of give me a bunch of laws and tell me what I have to do and I can, and I can please God by being good and just, just give, me, give me the 10 easy steps to follow to be a Christian. <laughs> uh, we've got thousands of books in the libraries and bookstores. 10 easy steps to you know, fill in the blank. Uh, and the flesh likes that. You know, how, do I, how do I live as a Christian? Uh, don't lie, don't steal, don't, you know, give me, give, me, give me the things I need to do to be a Christian and I'm going to be, be happy. I, I, can, I can do, you know, 10 easy steps. Only problem is God gives 613 not so easy steps. <laughs> and, you know, most people, and the whole reason he gave them was to show people that they could not earn their salvation. And so Paul comes in with God's grace. Jesus died for your sins and now you can go to heaven. And it's just by God's wonderful grace because he paid the debt that he didn't owe that we could have the gift that we didn't earn. So that he comes in and Paul comes in with a message saying God's laws are not worthless but they're not going to get you into heaven and here is how you get to heaven. And certain other people responded. And this is the message that we as a church have when we're preaching the pure gospel of Christ. 
Jesus came to this world, lived the perfect life, died for our sins so that God can now extend us the grace and mercy that he wants to give us and accept us as children. Now, the problem is that that goes against our pride and our desires. Because when you give the pure gospel message to people, many will people go, but what about, how do I? And the answer is you don't. You know, you don't live a good life. You don't, you don't go out and do these things to guarantee you into heaven. But that is what people want because they want to go, they want to be able to go to God and say, God, look what I did for you. I deserve to come into heaven because of all these, I kept all the rules that I was told to keep. And then God will look and go, well, those are man's rules. Here's my rules. And a matter of fact, here's what I meant. I was so far that even if you thought about breaking the rules, you have broken the rules. And people go, well, that's not fair because I can't, I can't not think about not, not doing it. I have a sin nature. You know, and that is true. How many times have we thought maybe about lying, but our parents drilled it into our head so much to tell the truth that we went ahead and told the truth anyway. But in the back of our mind was, if I could just get away with it, maybe I would... Would, would, would want to do with that. And so Paul is coming in and saying, God's grace. And grace is such a beautiful world. One of these days I'm going to talk to the, have a message just on grace because it is so deep. As then one person has come up with an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. And that is a true statement of what grace is, but it's so much deeper even than that. But it really is getting everything that God wants to give us paid for by Christ. And this is the message Paul got, and there was a bunch of the people in the synagogue that was decided, we want, to, we want to know more about this message. We want to follow after grace. The Lamb of God died so that we will be able to be forgiven. And then verse 34 said, and the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. Now can you imagine this? Antioch was, was a major city in the area. It was the crossroads of all the trade routes in that, in that area. And it says, almost the whole city. Now, I don't know if it was really how much, the old, um, how much of the almost it was, but there were a lot of people. Now, can you imagine coming to church, and everybody from your church is there, and then the rest of town is there? Uh, <laughs> There's not many buildings anywhere where, where the whole town would fit into one building. Uh, you know, our, our city, our church definitely wouldn't fit even our, even our own town. Uh, I mean, if we shoulder to shoulder in our, in our little, little place, we can fit 87, uh, 84 people. And that's fitting six people per, per pew. And then sitting people on the floor, we might get 100 in here out of the 300 that live here. <laughs> So here we have Paul's coming to teach. The Jews are coming to their synagogue, and the rest of the town, the rest of the city's there. Outside, surrounding the city, all wanting to hear Paul and his message. And the Jews have a very interesting uh, attitude about this. Verse. Uh, 45 said, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. All right. Envy. The desire to have something that, that isn't theirs. They had Paul all to themselves if they had just listened to the message. Now they're looking around, and this message they thought was for them as Jews, all the Gentiles want to hear. Now, this is what God told them all through the Old Testament, is that when, Jesus, when the Messiah came, the Gentiles would respond. But the Jews have always had this attitude that we're better than everybody else just because we are born Jews. So they get to their synagogue, which they can't even get to the front door, basically, of because there's a whole crowd of people all wanting to get in their synagogue, which is for Jews only. <laughs> Yeah, they'll let, a, they'll let a handful of Gentiles in once in a while for special events, but the whole city, <laughs> uh, there's no room for them. <laughs> and, you know, you can imagine 
if you were there. You know, like I said, we, if we came to our church and all 300 people in our town were here at the front door ready to come to church, there would be a lot of people, even in the church, who might be a little upset that this is my church. What, what are you all doing here? Now, many of us would be excited. The whole, the whole town has come to here. And you're right. I'd, I'd get our speakers up and I'd, stick, I'd open up the windows and our speakers would be outside the doors and we'd be you know, plugging in the loudspeakers for the, for the outside, for the bells and everything else that we could do. But there would be many people, even in our church, that would be, this is our church. What are you all doing here? Just as the Jews were doing here, this is, this is our building. This is our environment. Why are you all here to hear the message about our God? Because you've got to remember, Antioch, the, the, the people of Antioch weren't followers of one God. They followed all the different Roman and Greek gods and goddesses, and they were just looking for one more god that might be the god to worship because they knew that all their other gods left them empty. They knew that their other gods were powerless, and here's Paul talking about a god with power, and if you go back over his message, you see he's going over the history of Israel and how God had delivered them from Egypt, how God had brought, given them victory in the promised land, and how God had done this, and God had done that, and God had done this. And they're looking at their gods and saying, you know, my God stands in a corner and I put, a, put an offering in front of it and eventually it disappears. I think it's the priests that are taking it. I don't think it's the God, but, you know, they're never going to say that out loud because it disappears. And they never get anything from their God. And they're being told it's because you're not uh, worshiping strong enough and hard enough. And Paul comes in talking about a God who loves his people, does things for him, even when they're disobedient. Do people get that message from us when we're talking to them about Christ and, and God? Or do we try to make them think if they get their life right, God might do something for them? You know, and I've seen a lot of Christians, that's their gospel message. When you get good enough, maybe you can come into the church and we can tell you about Jesus. And that is a sad message because that's not the gospel message. God meets people where they're at. And I've said it over and over. I would rather be talking to somebody who knows they're a stinking rotten sinner than somebody who thinks they've got their life put together because that person who knows they're a sinner, once you crack into there that God loves them, they're going to respond and change. That person who thinks that God should love them because of how good they, good they have become is very hard to reach. And Paul comes in and there's the city. <laughs> what an opportunity. What an opportunity to preach. And the people, the Jewish people, started railing against Paul. <laughs> you know, they started going after Paul and saying that what Paul, contradicting what Paul said and blaspheming the gospel message. Why? Because they were jealous. All these people were going to follow God. Should have made them happy, but that's not the way the Jewish person thought. They were special. If you didn't become a Jew and, and follow God's laws and rules, you weren't special. Unfortunately, there are many churches where people think the same way. If you don't dress right, speak right, act right, you don't belong in our church and the gospel's not for you. you know, we we kind of look at this and say, well, how could they do this? But I have seen it over and over amongst different groups that just go, you know, well, that person can't come into our church. Go, in, go into the South. Go into churches in the South. If you don't have, as a, as a man, you're, you're at least slacks in a tie and, and probably your, your sport jacket or a full suit on, you're not allowed into church. And women don't even dare come into the church without a dress and your hat, you know, as if God is looking at the way we're dressed for going to church. Uh, you know, and say the right words and speak the right words. There are certain churches, if you're not yelling hallelujah and amen and praise the Lord, then people look at you like there's something wrong with you. you know, we, even in the church, have the same type of things that can happen. That we look at somebody and going, well, you don't belong in this church. You, you're, you just don't act right. You don't speak right. You, may, you might not smell right. You put, perf you put perfume on. 
Uh, there, there are certain denominations for women, if you put on makeup, you're kicked out of the church. You know, because how dare you try to, to make yourself look pretty and come to church. You're trying to get a guy or something. I don't know what their logic is. You know, but you can't come to, God, you can't come to God's house. He knows what you look, at, look like you know, with and without it. So don't come. You know, there's just dumb things that are done. Here's what they're doing. They're contradicting Paul's message. All because they're jealous. Here's the opportunity the whole town can turn to God. And they aren't interested in that message. Because God's mercy and grace is going to allow them to come just as they are. They're not expecting them to come and get circumcised and follow the, follow the 613 laws of the Old Testament and, and then be baptized and agree to do this. Paul's not doing any of that with them. He's preaching the grace of God. And I can understand what they're going and they're going, they're, they're starting, their rabbi's listing off all the, the Ten Commandments at the very least. And then he's starting down the whole list of the other 603 commandments and saying, Paul, you know, you didn't talk about this, you didn't talk about this, you didn't talk about this, you didn't, you can't have all these people just come for the grace of God. You know, they've got, they've got to obey the laws and if they're not obeying the laws and, and making their pilgrimages to Jerusalem to make sacrifices, they can't be a follower of God. And they're attacking Paul. When it's an opportunity to see a whole town change. And Paul and Barnabas have said they waxed bold. Um, this is kind of interesting because when a Christian gets to where they defend God, usually something happens to them. And it's involved, Paul said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing that you have put it from you, judge yourselves un and, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. You, and this is what Paul's going to say in every city he goes to. I'm going to go to the Jew first. And then when, when they rejected, and he seemed to know that they were going to reject it, because for them, this was a big deal. Jews were special, and you're going to bring anybody and everybody who wants to be in this group into this group, we're no longer special if you bring everybody in. And Paul's saying, exactly. <laughs> You're only special because God is brought you in. You're not special because of what you have done. You're not special because of anything. You just happen to be descendants of Abraham that are being disobedient and not obeying the rules. And you don't even know that you're not obeying the rules because you think you are. Because you're picking and choosing what rules you want to obey. And this is the funny thing, even in churches, none of the churches that, have, that live on rules obey all 613 commandments in the Bible. They pick and choose the rules they're going to think are important. And as long as you live by those 20, 30 rules, that, you know, and usually they're unspoken rules, which is even worse, you know, as long as you live by those rules, you're okay with the church. And because you're okay with the church, then you're okay with God. And God says, I have not changed my rules. This is where we're at in today's world. The church keeps changing the rules to match closer and closer to the world. And God's saying, but here are my rules. Way, way, way over there are my rules. Yours are way over here. You know, you're still a long ways from completely being like the world. But you're a long ways from what I set as my standards. God's laws were designed for one reason, and that's to show us that we're sinners and can't keep his, keep his word. You know, we can't keep the Ten Commandments, much less the other 603 commandments in the Bible. So God's rules were never there to make us be perfect. They were there to show us that we cannot be perfect. And then he says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. For the Jewish people, before the, before the temple was destroyed and during the time of the tabernacle, once a year the sin offering was made. And for a couple of days you knew that your sins were forgiven because everything that was committed up to that point was covered by the blood of that, that animal. For the next 365 days you had to wonder if you were good enough 
and if God's mercy would hold that blood a little further, further out for you. But you knew that you were always guilty. And then you'd come back together the next year, and the, the priest would put his hand on the scapegoat. He'd, 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 he would place all the sins of the, the entire nation upon that scapegoat. They'd, they'd guide that goat out to the wilderness and let it go, symbolizing the idea that God had forgiven their sins. And then they would go sacrifice the other one and have their sins covered again for another year. What a sad way to live. <laughs> neither, neither could they, and they knew that that was the problem. And you know, those are like for those who believe you can lose your salvation. What a terrible way to live. Uh, God, I just sinned just three seconds before I before I had my heart attack. Does that mean I go to hell? Well, if you really truly believe you can lose your salvation, yes, that means you went to hell. Yeah, you know, and we can't live that way. This is why it is wonderful knowing that when Jesus went on the, on the cross, he took all the sin of the world, past, present, and future, on him on the cross. He became the propitiation for sin. That means that he took all the punishment of the Father on sin upon himself on that period of time. All the sin that belonged on all the trillions and 10 trillion, 100 trillion, however many trillions of people that have lived for the entire uh, beginning of time till now on, he took all the sin of the world upon himself at the cross. So that now there is only one unforgivable sin, and that is to reject the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When people stand before God, they're going to stand before him with their own righteousness, which is filthy rags, or the righteousness of Christ. And we stand before him at the Bema seat as, as his children, not at the white throne, right throne judgment. And they will stand in front of them, not in the bad evil that they've done, but their own righteousness. And God will say, depart from me. Depart. And they will be sent to hell. And that is doing what most people think they want to do when they stand before God. I hope I'm good enough to please God. And when they stand at the white throne judgment, they're going to stand in all of their goodness, which is filthy rags. And God's going to say, sorry, I have a dress code. You have to be dressed in a perfect white garment to get into heaven. And they're all going to get to look down at the rags that they're wearing and be rejected. And this is the message of grace that Paul is bringing to Antioch. You Jewish people who think you're so special because you think you're obeying God's laws and you're going to the temple, you're going, making the trip three times a year to go to the temple and have the sacrifices made, it's not enough. God's grace is what it takes. Now, and as Paul says later in Romans, he goes, do we sin that grace may abound? He goes, says, God forbid. We, if we truly love God, we are not going out and sinning just so that we can get more grace. For one thing, we know that we're so bad that we don't deserve grace in the first place, so we know that we're getting all that we don't deserve, and we're happy just to have the grace that we have. And so here's the message, and he says, we came to you first. You didn't want everlasting life, so now we're going to go to the Gentiles. Can you imagine what he's telling them? You want to abide under the law. You want to try to earn your salvation. You want to live in the uncertainty of all these rules and, and sacrifices when eternal life was placed in your hands. This is why John 3.16 is so important. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life and the good news for us is everlasting life does not start the moment our body dies it starts the moment that Christ comes in and lives in us at that moment we start eternal life and it's just a matter of our body dropping away from us and to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord forevermore and then we just go oh 
You know, there's that, oh, look at that ugly thing down there. <laughs> now, I'm glad to be rid of that. With all the temptation and sin that it brought with it. And it just falls away and we enter into the total freedom of our everlasting life. And Paul says, you've rejected this. You want to live under the laws. You want to live under the rules. And so many people who at least name the name of Christ want to live under the laws and the rules. And again, it, it makes human nature. I mean, we all want, you know, what are the five steps to get out of this? You know, what are the five steps to being victorious? What are the five steps to having the, being the king of the mountain or the king of the, king of the business? You know, what, what are the ten steps? You know, we have lots of ten steps. What are the ten steps that I need to do to do whatever? That's what these people were looking for, and that's what so many Christians are looking for. Just tell me what the ten steps are to be victorious Christian living, and I'll, and I'll do ten steps. I can, I can do ten steps. Well, you, most of us can't do ten steps, but you know, at least in our brain we think, you know, I can do ten things. Just give me ten things to do, and I'll do it. And this is what the Jews were in the synagogue were saying. You know, this guy, you know, well, we liked his message. It sounded really good, but the whole town wants it. No, we can't, we can't have that. You know, you guys have 613 steps you've got to follow to, to be part of God's, God's family. And Paul's saying, you're rejecting everlasting life. And he goes on, goes on. So he goes, now, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Verse 47, for so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set you to be a light to the, of the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were very glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was published throughout the region. All right, so the Gentiles, they like this message. This is a powerful message to them. This is the message. When we can give the pure gospel out to people, it, people respond. If it can be get through, their, get through their hearing, get through their pride, people love the pure message. All you have to do is confess your sins, repent, and accept the gift of Christ. Now, it's a simple message. It's an easy message. It's so easy that most people won't do it because they're all looking for the catch. For, for, and, we've, and we say it, we've all said it, if, if, a, if an offer is too good to be true, it's probably not true. So that's how many people look at Christianity. You say, I get to have eternal life, peace that passes understanding, a God who's going to give me the strength to get through anything, and all I have to do is follow him. What's the catch? There isn't one. Other than you have to give up yourself. And people go, well, I'm not ready to give up my sins. I didn't say you had to give up your sins. I said you had to follow God. Now, in the long run, I know they're going to give up their sins. But I do not have to give up my sins to turn my life over to God. I have to repent. And then slowly, God starts taking away sins that I didn't even know that I had. And when you first get saved, you know there's things that God's going to want to take out of it. But the longer you walk with him, the more he starts showing you there's things in your life that you never even thought were a sin when you first started walking with him. And now he's showing you that there's sins and you need to get rid of them. And... You know, and if God had showed us everything that we were going to have to get rid of when we first started following him, nobody would follow him. Nobody would follow God if they knew how much he was going to change their life. But you know, the good news is everything he gets rid of, he gives so much more than he takes away. God has taken things out of my life. Some of them that aren't truly even sins. They just took away time from him, which made them idols. But they weren't real sins necessarily, like TV and watching sports and things like that. But you know... When God asked me to give up my NFL football, I thought that was asking too much when he first asked it. Because you know, I went home from church and I watched the game that was still in, in progress. I watched the game in between and I watched as much of the game before night service as possible and usually recorded that game so I could finish watching it when I got home. I was addicted to football. And the first couple times God said, are you going to get rid of it? I'm going, ah, oh, God, I like my football too much. Now, I'm not saying the football was a sin, but the way I was following it was, was a sin. And God eventually said, well, wouldn't you like to spend more time with me? 
well, you know, God, I really would, but I'm really not ready to give up football. <laughs> you know, but when he asked that question, are you going to spend more time with me, all of a sudden it realized to me that football had become an idol for me. And at that point, it was like, okay, God, I'm ready to give it up. Now, does that mean I don't watch any football whatsoever? Not very much. <laughs> but I'm not opposed to sitting down and watching a football game because now it's in its proper place in my life. And for somebody, it might be their books. It might be their hobby. It might be something that they do that they just spend so much time in that they just can't imagine giving up. And God might just say, will you give this up for me to spend more time with me? Because we make things into idols so easy. You know, very few people in our day and age at this point in life have an actual stone, stone or, or metal idol laying in their, laying in their house. Now, yeah. <laughs> but we do have idols all over the place. And unfortunately, the stone and the metal idols are coming back in it with a vengeance. They never left most of Asia. They never left much of, of uh, Africa and South America. They are coming back into Europe and America where people are literally bowing down before stone and, and metal idols you know, that we never thought we'd ever see. Why? Because we are becoming a pre-Christian world again. And people literally aren't just having their idol be in their TV or their, their activities and stuff. They're literally having idols now that they're bowing down before and they're becoming more and more of these things going on. And Paul is talking to people and he's, he's going to call them away from their idols. He's going to call them away from their, from their idols. 48 and when the, uh, verse 47, excuse me. And the Lord commanded and saying, I have set you to be a light to the Gentiles that you should be for their salvation and to the ends of the world. And all through the scriptures, God talks about how he will be a light unto the Gentiles. It is so hard when you read through the Old Testament to see that God kept telling the Jews that he was a God for everybody. And they kept taking the attitude of, we are special, we are called by God, and everybody else is going to hell because God did not call them. You, know, you read the Pentateuch, and he goes out with all these rules about worship and, and sacrifices and these feasts, and he goes, this is for you and for anybody who wants to come and they kept making it harder and harder for the Gentiles to get part of a relationship with God. And, you know, this is true even in many churches. You know, a, somebody who's not a member of the church walks in. They're not dressed quite right. They're not dressed in the right, right, right. They may not, I'm not saying they're dressed poorly or anything. They're just, they didn't come in the right colored suit that, for that day or the, the right hairdo or their hair's longer than the rest of everybody or shorter than the rest of everybody or, or whatever else. And people look at them. What are you doing in our church? It's kind of the way the Jews were with the people. You're, you're not circumcised. You can't come in. You're not, you're not trying to follow God's laws. You're not, you can't come in. We don't care if you want to follow God or not. You're not following the rules. We need to be so careful not to do that with people. God's grace will bring them to him. Now, eventually, God will work on language. He'll work on attitudes. He'll work on whatever he needs worked on. And it might be for the church members themselves that need to learn <laughs> you know, that there's nothing there. Now, I, I made fun of the southern churches with their suits and ties. You know, it's just as bad in some churches where they are so casual that they'll look down their nose at somebody who comes in with a suit and tie. They go the other extreme. Well, you know what? Those guys in suits and ties, they just think they're better than everybody else. So we, we don't want them. In our, we don't want that type of person in our church. And, you know, so I want to make sure it goes both ways. It can, it can go both directions on that. And I've been to churches where, you know, you come dressed up to honor God and they look at you like, what's wrong with you? You know, how could you, how, how can you dare, you know, why would you try to impress God by dressing up like that? Yeah. 
And I've, you know, I've actually had somebody tell me that, you know, the Bible says that women should not wear men's clothing. I'm going, and I even told them, I'm going, all right, one day when I see you wearing the pantsuit that that woman wears, I'll believe that that's true. <laughs> because it was definitely not a man-cut suit <laughs> that that woman was wearing. Uh, and I go, you wear, you wear her clothes, and I'll believe that, that, <laughs> that that's what you're saying. You know, but again, how judgmental and how easy it is to get judgmental on that. Because God is looking at the heart and saying, have you turned your life over to me? If we're trying to boil him down to five or six, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever, a hundred rules, and say, you do these rules and you're okay with God, God's still looking at the heart and saying, you're just trying to show off. You're not truly being repentant and seeking forgiveness. And we need to be very careful that we're not trying to impress God. Because he's not impressed because he sees us every moment of every day. He sees us for what we are. All we're doing is trying to impress people in actuality. Well, you know what? When I come to church, I'm going to have a smile on my face. I'm going to be, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be properly dressed. And everybody's going to think I'm the best Christian in the world. Even though I just beat my kids and, and my wife that morning and we had a fight on the way to church and we're all going to smile when we're at church and then when we get back in the car, we can fight and argue as much as we want. But when we're at church, we're going we're to put on this, this idea that we're, we're the perfect Christian family. And, you know, God already knows that that's not true. Most of the church suspects that it's not true. <laughs> Because they know that they're not that way when they're playing, 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 the, playing on with their masks. And then the world knows that it's not true. Which is the problem the world has with most Christians. They see these Christians go to the church and put on their, put on their facade. And then they see them at work. Lying and cheating and, and stabbing people in the back to get progress, you know, moved up and going, well, yeah, they're just like us. They're, 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 their Christianity stops at the door of the church. Then when we get somebody who actually lives out Christianity 24-7, 365 a year, people look at them and say, there's something wrong with those people. Those guys are strange. They actually believe, believe and live what, they, what they're teaching and what they, what they believe. And they struggle with it. Because this is what gets Christian, true Christians in trouble with the world right now. Because we want to live out our faith in everything we do. Which means when I'm in my workplace or my business and don't accept homosexuality and fornication and adultery, people look at me like, well, you can't, you can't enforce those things on us. Keep your religion in your church or in your own home, but don't bring it out into society. Paul is going to get into trouble here in just a few verses for bringing God into society. We need to be ready for it because when we bring God into people's presence who don't want to follow God, there's going to be rebellion. And in our day and age, people are actively seeking out Christians to cause a problem. And if you listen very closely to our politicians and everything, we do not have freedom of religion anymore in their mind. We have freedom of worship. And there's a huge difference between freedom of religion and freedom of worship. Religion means I get to live out what I believe. Worship means do whatever you want in your church and do whatever you want in your house, but don't dare bring it out into, into society because it's not worship there. Even though we as Christians will say, I'm worshiping God in everything I do, the world says, well, you can do whatever you want inside your church. You can do what you want in your home, but don't bring it into the workplace. Don't bring it out into society. Don't bring it out to the football game and have prayer before service starts. Don't, don't do anything that makes other people feel uncomfortable because your God is being worshipped. They can worship their, their gods, but we can't bring God, the God into, into, their, into their midst. Because all their other gods allows any other god because they're false gods. And this is where we have the problem at. We as followers of the God, the one and only God, cannot accept what he does not accept. 
when you have multitudes of gods and you're used to each god having different, different needs and requests and desires, you can let anybody do what they want because it doesn't really matter because it's just another god. I don't like this god, I'll go over there and follow that god. I don't like that god, that god's got, I'll go over and follow this god. And then we have people creating their own god. Designer religion in today's world. I like this part of Christianity, I like this part of Buddhism, I like this part of Hinduism, I like, you know, I like this part of, part of ancestral worship, I'll just jumble them all together and follow the parts that I like. And any part of those religions I don't like, I throw away. And what have you done? You've actually made a new god, you. You are now the ruler of everything and you're the one that decides what's right and wrong and you have just raised yourself to God. And this is something that is very serious in our world today. We've got many Christians that are claiming to be Christians that are throwing out what they don't want in the Bible and accepting what they like in the Bible and saying they're Christian. All they've done is elevated themselves to God. We have the hyper-intellectuals say, well, I can't understand everything there is to know about God, or the God of the Bible, so I reject him. They've just made themselves God. If I can't understand it, it can't possibly be true. Because I'm God. And you know, that is not what God teaches us. <laughs> he says, I am God, there is none other beside me. If we do not accept him for who he says he is, whether we understand it or not, I love it that even after 40 plus years of studying God's word, I do not understand everything there is to know about God. If I could, I'd be in trouble. Because my God would be too small. I love that I don't fully understand the Trinity and I understand it better than most people do and I still don't understand the Trinity. I don't understand that he can preordain everything and, and have a, have a pre-planned plan and yet we have a free will. It makes no sense to me. But I do know that God teaches it and it probably makes perfect sense to him. Even though I can't make any sense of it and that to me is a very comforting point of view because if, if I could understand God then I would be God and I'm not smart enough big enough or, or no, know enough to be God so I don't want to be God I like the fact that I don't know all there is to know about him I don't know why he created man knowing that he was going to have to die for us yet I'm glad that he did and I'm glad that he, that he created us and I'm glad he died for us even though I can't possibly understand what he gets out of this relationship. But that shows his true love nature as well. That he's really able to reach out because we as human beings would never do something if we got nothing out of it. And we judge God by that same standard. God, why would you create us knowing that you had to die for us so that you get us? Because we know we're not worth, we know we weren't worth the exchange. And yet his love did that. So that he is so much more loving, so much more great than we are, because we could never understand why he would do something of that nature. Because we know in our, in our human fallen nature, we would never do something like that. Ever. Because we would go, what do I get out? You know, I'm going to get a bunch of lousy, stinking sinners that I had to redeem, that I had to dress, that I had to make perfect, and then I get them? In our mind, we can't even comprehend why God would ever do something like that. And yet, he did. And apparently, did it joyfully and willingly. There was nobody above him twisting his arm and saying, you've got to create those guys and, and so that they'll sin so that you'll have to die for them. Because if there was, that person needs to be God and not God. He did it of his own free will. That is an amazing thought. It puts him so much higher than we'll ever, ever be able to comprehend. Then he said, when they heard that, the, in verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, the message that, they were, that God was a light to the Gentiles, that, they should, that there should be salvation, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. I love that, glorified the word. They heard the word and responded. 
And the word of the Lord was published throughout the region. So from that town, the gospel message and the word went out. Not just by Paul and Barnabas anymore. The Gentiles were spreading it around town. You know what the message was? You know, you, you know they, there's a God that loves us just because. That he wants to give us grace. He wants us to be part of him. I hope that our church starts this kind of a attitude that the word of God is expanded and preached and taught. God loves sinners. So much so that Jesus died for them so that they could be his children. And the Jews had a wonderful reaction. They loved it. They loved this uh, thing. Uh, not really. Verse 50. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coast. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. All right, the Jews stirred up, they incited. And we kind of look at who they went to. They went first to the devout and honorable women. Now this is kind of an interesting thing. The Jewish woman had no rights. <laughs> now they followed God and loved God, don't get me wrong, but as far as the rights were concerned, under Judaism they had no rights. They were property. Under the Greek and Roman society, Greek society they were property. In the Roman society, they had a little bit of influence, and people recognized them as influence, but they still could not go to court. They could not, they, they could not do a lot of things. But they understood that the women had influence at home. Even when these women had no rights outside of the home, a woman has always had influence at home, especially in those days when the men didn't cook or clean or do their own clothes, or anything else. Uh, so they stirred them up. And they stirred up the devout men, the elders of the town, who were the leaders. So they knew who to go after. They weren't going after the people. The people were following after, after Paul and Barnabas. So they went behind the scenes. They got the good people, the leaders. Leaders have always been the sore spot in revival if they don't get converted because they see their power drifting away. And when people are in power, they will do whatever it takes to stay in power if they're not following and honoring God first. They saw a problem here and they raised up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coast kicked them out. You're no longer allowed in our town. You're no longer allowed in our area. Get out. And I love it. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the one thing I like about the book of Acts that people tend to overlook. Every time persecution fell upon them, they got joyful. Why? Because basically they were looking at the words that Jesus said, they hated me, they will hate you. So every time persecution fell upon them for doing God's work, they go, wow, we are just like Jesus. God said that we would not be accepted. God said that we would be persecuted. And they go, we have been found worthy. In today's Christian world, we need to get back to this point where we go, when persecution falls, we have been found worthy. When we're persecuted for Christ, we need to get to the place where we say, thank you. We get joyful. Not because of the persecution. They weren't, they weren't happy because they were persecuted. They were happy because they were found worthy of persecution. And we need to get into this attitude of when persecution comes upon us, and it's not a if, it is when. When the persecution comes on us for Christ, that we take joy and that we're ready 
And we need to get mentally ready for persecution and possibly even death. And I, I still have this picture, I guess it's now about eight or nine years ago, of the Coptic Christians in Egypt that were beheaded by the Muslims on the beach as they were singing praises to God. That impressed me. I mean, it was sickening to, yeah. you know, sickening on the one side, but here were people that were so devoted to God that they were ready to die and did it with joy in their hearts because they were worthy to suffer for Christ. The sad thing I think here in America is that most Christians would never be able to do that. They would be, they'd be out there demanding their rights and demanding going to the, this and, and, and angry that the government wasn't delivering them and all the other things that were going on. And I'm not saying that we don't stand up for our rights, but at the same time, are we being joyful that we have been found worthy of persecution? We can still fight, fight for our rights. Paul did. You know, in the very end of his days, it says, I appeal to Caesar. Now, he kind of did it a little early because Festus told him, I was all set to, to release you, but now that you've asked for your day in court, you've got to go to court. <laughs> you now have to go to Caesar, who's going who's to convict you. But Paul was still joyful for, through his persecution. It doesn't mean we become doormats because of our joy. It doesn't mean that we forget all of our rights. But are we staying joyful? Are we saying, God, thank you that I have been found worthy? And all through Acts, we see that statement, thank you that I have been found worthy to suffer. And in, a, in a American Christianity, we're getting to this idea that if we suffer, something's wrong. We are getting into a prosperity gospel, a name it and claim it gospel. If, if, if everything is not good, then something is wrong with us. There's nothing scriptural about that attitude. The whole book of Job is all about that, you know, breaking Job of that attitude of you, you lived a good life and therefore you're supposed to have everything work your way and be good. And yet, all through American Christianity is this idea that if you're not healthy, wealthy, and wise, something's wrong with you. And everything's going good. And nowhere in the Bible was that taught. Yes, there were periods where people had good things happening to them. And then there were periods when bad things happened to them. All by the blessing of God. And we need to be able to come down to the fact that we're looking at, I'm content with whatever God brings my, my direction. Paul and, Paul and Silas had just converted an entire town, other than a handful of Jews who got, got envious of everybody following God. Now they're kicked out, and they're joyful. Joyful for one side, the, the town has been converted, except for a handful of people. But also, they're joyful, we have been found worthy of suffering for Christ. Now I know they would have loved to stay in town a lot longer and, and discipled and built up these people. But they had turned the town upside down for God. And when revival hits a town, and the people truly get saved, it doesn't get stopped just because the evangelist is kicked out of town. During the Second Great Awakening of America, whole towns were converted to Christ. Saloons, brothels were closed down, not because they made laws against them. People stopped coming. Or that the owner got saved and changed it from, from a bar or a brothel into a place so that they could worship God. Or if they didn't get saved, enough people stopped coming that they couldn't keep in business. When God moves, things change, and it cannot be pulled back without a long period of time of people not being uh, growing in Christ. I'm looking for a revival coming in at least parts of America. You know, I would love to see a revival hit our town that would shut down our last remaining place where they can get alcohol in a, in a business. Why? Not because I want to see them go out of business. I want to see the bar of, of that go out of business. Actually, we've got two places. I forgot about the other place where they get all the drinking. Of the, you know. 
But you know, if the whole town was to get saved, not just to come to this church, but just to get saved and see the difference God would make in this town and, and see it spread out, just as this, into the region, convert our county, convert our state, and we're happen to be, we're, we're closer, closer to Las Vegas than we are to the capital of our state, so maybe we would affect you know, Nevada as well. Could you imagine if God got hold of Nevada? Especially Las Vegas? A revival in Las Vegas, Sin City? If God got a revival there, that would make the news. <laughs> we can pray and see what God has in store. Antioch was a city that was a trade route. It was not one that people would have expected a revival to have occurred in. And yet, God stepped into Antioch. And the city, a large portion of the city, was converted and started to follow God. So much so that the ones who were following God in the beginning got jealous and, and maneuvered the evangelists that were changing the city out. That is a sad state of affairs. And I've seen it in other places, and there have been missionaries that have seen it happen too, where they come in and start worshiping, and the local church that was very small and not doing anything gets jealous and tries to get them kicked out. It happens more often than not where the, the small group that has been established gets jealous of God's work. That is why I've said for here, my job is so simple. I proclaim Christ. I build his kingdom. I'm not here to build Chloride Baptist Church. I'm here to build the church of Jesus Christ. And you know what? It's been very true. It seems like every time somebody gets on fire around here for God, God moves them out someplace else. And, you know, I'm going, okay, God, you know, I'd like to keep a few of the people around here for a while. You know, but... My goal is not just to build this church, it is to build the kingdom. And if the people that get taught here move out and, and, and help at other churches, praise God, they've been trained to do, go elsewhere. But the good news is that God is lifted up. We lift him up. It's his job to keep this church here. Not my job, not our job. It's his job to keep the church here. My job is to teach the people here, encourage, disciple, build up, and see what God's going to do. Would I love to have a larger church? I've, obviously, I'd love to have enough people in our church so that I could be just a full-time pastor and not, not have two jobs. But as long as God has got me here to do two jobs, I'll do two jobs. When I get old enough to retire, if there isn't retirement, you know, with the way, the way our country's going, uh, you know, I'm kind of scared about where our country's headed to. But God is still in charge. He knows what's going on. He knows what's going to happen. We just lift him up. Our job is so simple. Express God to others. Bring others to him. He will then grow them and be able to expand. If we want to see another revival in our country, we as individuals need to go out and talk to others. Bill Bright, who is a leading, leading evangelist and a creator of Christian fellowships, he said that if every Christian just led one person to the Lord, the, the world would be evangelized within six months. The sad thing is how many Christians I know that have never had the privilege of praying with somebody and leading them to the Lord. And because the world is not evangelized after the 15 or 20 years when he said this, means that most Christians have not had the privilege of leading even one person to the Lord. And it's sad when you think of the handful of people that have led multiple people to the Lord. And we're not the one to say, don't get me wrong, it's just, but have we shared the gospel and seen somebody bow their head in prayer and accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. It is the greatest privilege that we can have as a Christian to be able to pray with somebody and see them come to Christ. 
and it is a great blessing, and you know that it's not you, it's all God, but still, you had a part. Now, we all, if you've shared your gospel, you've planted seeds. Maybe you're the one that watered it. I had one person that got very jealous because I was the one that got to pray with somebody, and they'd talked to them so many times. I'm going, you laid the seeds. I had the privilege of actually being able to sit down with them and have them pray, but you did lead, you laid the seeds. And don't take it, if you've shared the gospel, you probably have more impact into people's lives than you think. Because it is so wonderful. Uh, I love the song that says, thank you. You know, and it starts, I dreamed I went to heaven, you were there with me. And it talks about all these people that came to Christ through that person's ministry. You know, the times that you've prayed, the times that you have shared, the times that you have just lived out your, your, your life in Christ with people. There are people that know that you're a Christian just because of the way you act if you're really following him. But we do need to speak words once in a while. Lifestyle evangelism was a great big thing back in the 80s and 90s. Just live a life that everybody's going to want to, want to emulate. Well, it was a great idea, except you have to use words once in a while <laughs> and tell people what is different. Uh, I do remember there was a time when people thought we were on drugs because we were happy all the time as Christians. Yeah. I even had one guy go, what drug are you on? Because I want it. I'm going, well, you, I'll, I'll tell you what it is then. It's Jesus. Well, I, how, do I, how do I buy Jesus? Let me tell you how you get Jesus. And I don't know if anybody else would remember those type of days, but, you know, during that drug-crazed world, they were always looking for something. That if you were happy, you had to have been on a drug. You know, and it was a great opportunity to tell people about Jesus during that time. But, you know, we also have to be able to not just live a life that, that creates hunger and thirst, but we also have to give the, the food that fills that hunger and thirst once in a while and live a way that draws people, but speak the words that will show them how to get saved. And this is what's important for us, that we come and we influence people with the word of grace. God's grace. And, you know, and again, I've said it, you know, I've seen so many Christians that want to say, well, if you just get good enough, I'll talk to you. You get enough of your bad lifestyle out of you, I'll talk to you. That's not God's word. Jesus met people where they were at. He met the woman of Samaria at the well and, you know, if you really understood the culture that they, the fact that he even talked to her was that he was broken. He broke so many customs because she was at the well in the middle of the day, which meant that she was the type of woman that couldn't come with the other women. And I'll leave it at that part. You know, <laughs> she had a reputation. And Jesus was by himself talking to a woman with a reputation at the well with nobody else around. He wasn't supposed to talk to her, period, without a chaperone. Definitely shouldn't talk to a woman with her reputation, with or without a chaperone. And she was a Samaritan. And he was a Jew. Culturally, he violated every rule that you could violate to talk to her. But he knew that she needed God. And stepped out and talked to her. Jesus did this over and over and over again, talking to people that he wasn't supposed to talk to, you know, being nice to people who didn't deserve to be nice to, being mean to the people who deserved to be nice to. You know, and he's going, I'm lifting up my father. I'm lifting up his love for people. You guys who are supposed to be the ones that I'm being nice to, you guys are just a bunch of hypocrites. I know that you don't live right anyway, but I should be talking to you, but you don't acknowledge that you're, not, that you're not living right. So I'd be wasting my time talking to you. There are people that we waste our time talking to. If they're not ready to recognize that they are a sinner, showing the gospel message to them is not going to be of much value. Because the first step in understanding the gospel message is to understand that I'm a lost sinner that needs God. And until I recognize that fact, I won't decide that I need Jesus' gift. Because before that, I'm good. God just needs to know how good I am and I'll be okay. 
But when I recognize how bad I am, now I can accept the gift of Christ, and that's where the gospel message of grace comes in. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Lord, help us to love others. Help put people in our paths for us to be able to share the gospel with and, and help lead them to you. And we just thank you for all that you've done, that you were the payment for all of our sin, and that there is no way to heaven without you. And ask that you will guide others into that decision. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23 we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10.9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know Him. Do you know Him? Do you want to know Him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of His family, we encourage you to do these things. First tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.